Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm Brian Anderson, a WRL State Government Reporter. And it's kind of a quiet week, Brian. I mean, there's not been a whole lot uh, to write about this week or to do, but a couple of big stories um, emerging this week and, of course, a big preview for next week. Uh, I do want to mention, you, you wrote a little bit about the turnout. And, of course, we should mention that the state canvas went without, um, without a hitch which makes it unnewsworthy, except that, of course, people were really concerned that that wouldn't happen this election. Uh, but we're also getting some better numbers on turnout, and you wrote about that this week. Yeah, so we had 51.14% turnout. That's 3.79 million people casting a ballot out of uh, 7.4 million registered voters. And this is less than 2018 in terms of the percentage of the, the voting uh, the registered voters actually voting in a midterm. So it was less than before, but I think that turnout was 53% in 2018, about 51% this year. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, it was considered tremendous turnout by the State Board of Elections uh, Executive Director Karen Brinson-Bell. And it was still fairly high for a midterm election year, but maybe not as high as as some had expected or thought. Yeah, um, I'm curious, in terms of raw numbers, though, was it higher in terms of raw numbers? So it looks like we had the most number of registered voters who were served just because of of pure population growth. Right, growth, and, yeah. And 3.79 million people cast a ballot this year. And if you look back at 2018, that was 3.755 million. So slightly more people cast a ballot this so year. It was but that, a record in that way, but it wasn't a record in terms of percentage. Yes, it, it, well, it wasn't a record in terms of percentage, but it was in terms of just the raw votes, it appears. So the raw numbers, right. And it all went pretty smoothly, which is which we are all grateful for. Thank you very much. And we're not waiting for a recount on any races. And I have to tell you, after the last few years, 2016, 2018, 2020, I am so glad <laughs> this election <laughs> is done before Christmas. What a, what a concept. Um, and anyway, so a big story out this week. Um, this is the teacher pay plan. So if you've been following anything out of the, the world of education, you know that a few years back, the legislature um, created something called the professionals, it, Professional Educator Standards, P Preparation Standards Committee, um, Pepsi, as it's known by those who love it and hate it. And so one of the things that this group has been looking at is a way to change how teachers are licensed and evaluated and compensated. And so there's been a, a move afoot for the, you know, for the better part of the past year to do sort of like a statewide overhaul and make some pretty sweeping changes that would lead to slightly higher pay for teachers, but would also carry more um, more meaningful evaluations, I should say. Um, some teachers say that those evaluations were problematic because they don't have a good system or a good way to do assessments that everybody agrees is accurate. Um, and so, you know, in the long run, what they decided this week uh, is to recommend a pilot program for a few years to get a few um, get a few districts in on this and see you know, how well this is all working before they try to bring this to lawmakers to do the whole thing. Because I think the number I saw reported by um, our education reporter, Emily Walkenhorse, was it would cost somewhere around $1 billion to do this statewide. So it's going to cost, of course, you know, markedly less to do it in a few districts. And uh, Eric Davis, the chair of the Board of Education, said it'll help them to build their case so they can show results in those in those districts. 
And one thing that was interesting from State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Catherine Truett, a, a Republican, um, I, I, it's my understanding that she has uh, raised questions about just how you evaluate pay for teachers based on years of experience and you right. know, looking more towards these analytical measures. And for someone who's in maybe an, an underperforming district through no reflection of their teaching skills or has been around a, a long time as an experienced teacher uh, to be told that you, 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 your years of experience aren't necessarily the primary thing uh, that that we would consider when looking at raises. That that has come as a surprise to to some more experienced people who have been in the teaching business for a long time. Well, and that's how North Carolina has done this for a long time. So, you know, and, and that's sort of the way that the system has worked for as long as most of these people have been in the classroom. So, you know, it is definitely uh, a change. Um, I did notice that one of the proposals that was sort of in the earlier versions of this plan is gone. And that was one that would basically have what they called an off ramp for teachers that they deemed to be not effective enough. Um, they have sort of taken that out of the plan and they've sort of left it to a subcommittee to figure out what they're going to do about that. I mean, there's a mass teaching shortage. Uh, exactly. Generally. I mean, talking about an off ramp for people, you need an influx of people. Well, and they're also hoping that this will help with that because they say that it'll make it easier for people who are coming in from other professions, lateral entry teachers are called, who don't necessarily have an education degree uh, to get their license and to get up to speed and get up to pay a little bit more quickly. Gotcha. Um, anyway, so that's, you know, of course, this is all dependent on what the legislature decides to do. You know, the, the board's going to recommend these things and then and then they're going to come up with what it's going to cost and then it's going to you know go before the legislature and it'll be up to them to decide what parts, if any of this, they decide they want to go ahead with. Uh, but at any rate, it is it is a milestone um, that they are proposing this because it is definitely the first the, the largest scale change of its kind that I can remember since I've been covering North Carolina since 2004. So, uh, so it's a big deal. Um, another big thing that happened this week, you may remember for several years, there's been a lawsuit out there against the state from um, an IDD, a woman with intellectual and dis developmental disability. Um, and this had to do with the availability of uh, services, community-based services to people, to that to that group. You know, and the way that the, the lawsuit basically said the state's not producing or providing enough of these services in the community. So we're having to have people live in institutions and that goes against what we've said is the best treatment for these people. So it was kind of like I think Travis put it as it's a Leandro for for um, for developmental disabilities, essentially, because this is a judge saying you need to do more. Here's what you need to do. Let's put a price tag on it. Um, and here's sort of your, your blueprint for how you're going to need to handle this. Well, part of the blueprint would have the state actually stop accepting uh, people to a lot of facilities within five years. And um, Secretary Cody Kinsley held a press conference this week and said the state's going to appeal this ruling because they said they, he feels like it's going to end up putting people out on the street. And if you, if you follow North Carolina's, pros well, I would say uneven progress on mental health over the years, you might remember that about 20 years ago, there was a big push to do exactly this, to get more community-based services and to get people out of institutions. Unfortunately, what happened is a lot of people ended up homeless because it wasn't well thought out. And so, you know, perhaps this is an attempt to try to find a way, another way to do this that would offer more choices 
for people who might prefer to live, say, in a group home setting or might be better off, better suited in a group home setting, and it will offer more choices for folks who might prefer to live in a community instead without sort of, you know, um, a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's not the only legal developments coming up. Uh, my understanding, you're heading out to, to D.C., isn't that right? I am heading out Tuesday for the big show on Wednesday. This is more v. Harper. Um, if you are interested in politics at all, like you're listening to this web this podcast, so you are, uh, you probably know about this case. Um, a lot of people don't really because it's sort of it has to do with redistricting. And as soon as you say that word, most people's eyes just glaze over. Right. <laughs> it's true. Right. And it's fair. I mean, I'm interested in it, but I'm a geek. However, there's a much bigger kind of core issue at stake here, and that is whether or not legislators have to basically be checked by anyone except the voters at the, at the, you know, the ballot box when they are um, drawing maps or making other election laws for that matter, because this is, has to do with something called the independent state, le independent state legislator theory, which surfaced around 2000 in the Bush Gore, um, remember Florida, and they were trying to figure out who won Florida. It kind of surfaced in that time period. It's sort of been this fringe theory that's been out there for a while, but um, our legislators are going full, you know, taking the bit in their teeth and going full speed with it. Um, and so they're going to be making the argument uh, at the Supreme Court next week that that, in fact, the legislature doesn't even have to abide by the state constitution when it when it draws maps or sets the time, manner, and place of elections, because only the federal constitution can can govern it. So as you as you can imagine, there's a lot of voting rights groups who disagree with this. There's a lot of legal experts around the country on both sides of the aisle. I mean, including some really prominent Republican lawyers and conservatives who say that making this ruling number one would create chaos in the elections. Number two would reverse what the, the court already ruled in Rucho, which was just three years ago, which said that, no, the federal Supreme Court can't get involved in partisan gerrymandering, but the state courts can. So now that basically our plaintiffs here are asking the, the court to rule that state courts can't either. Right. And and just to take a moment to, to just say how we got here and, and why this is important. First, you that there's very clear national ramifications here. I mean, this is basically about can a state Supreme Court hold the state legislature in check. So this has implications beyond North Carolina and that many people are are watching, making, filing amicus briefs for. Uh, but basically for, for people who are unfamiliar and are going to be hearing a lot about this soon, uh, we had this what's supposed to be a, a once a decade redistricting process here in North Carolina that has turned into a seemingly every election year debate. Yes. <laughs> uh, redistricting process over the past decade, especially. And so the, we had the latest census numbers come out. North Carolina was awarded an extra congressional seat. So we have 14 congressional districts. Lawmakers go to the drawing board uh, last year and over the fall and a little bit toward the winter, they passed this map. And it seems plausible for Republicans to have 11 Republicans and three Democrats elected or 10 Republicans and, and four Democrats. And so... There's concerns from that from the Harper plaintiffs, which are basically a group of voters uh, represented by voting rights groups, Democratic leaning activists. And basically, they say this is aimed to dilute the voting power of racial minorities and dilute the power of, of Democratic voters or Democratic leaning voters. Uh, this is a very purple state still. So an 11, 3 or 10, 4 map is, is just not truly representative and 
and constitutional under people's right to one person, one vote, basically. Um, right. So just after that, the, the state Supreme Court, which was composed of four Democrats and still is composed of four Democrats and three Republicans, said, hey, lawmakers go back to the drawing board. The lawmakers did. They passed a new map uh, and the state Supreme Court had taken it to a lower court. The lower court said, still not good enough. We're going to create a map of our own that's only going to be used for the 2022 election, which which ended up happening and being used for this election year. But that presented the concern for House Speaker Tim Moore and other Republican lawmakers saying, can a state Supreme Court even do this? Can can a, Is it up to a judicial branch and a group of unelected people to have the ability to create a map? That's our job. We're the legislature. And uh, really what they're trying to argue here is that should really remain in our power. And if the federal government wants to do something, Congress can go ahead and pass a national law that we would obviously follow. But in the meantime, we're, state, we're the state legislature. We should have this largely exclusive authority to, to do this. Well, so, I mean, but I got to point out here just to break in that that process of having the courts review them and then, uh, you know, offer remedial maps and then have the court draw a map if the remedial maps don't don't suit. That's that's not new. Right. We've been doing that for years and years and years. Um, so, I mean, so, you know, this is sort of a new approach to um, to protesting it. But, you know, but this is not a new thing that the state Supreme Court did what do what they did, though that I think is a bigger deal is that they said they ruled that partisan gerrymandering in general is unconstitutional against the state constitution. And so therefore they say, you know, they had the right to step in and protect the voters from this. But that is the issue, you know, does what role, if any, does the court play in partisan redistricting because it is essentially inherently a political process, not not really a legal one. Um, but, you know, what the Supreme Court said at the time is, you know, there's once you when you when you gerrymander districts, you pretty much make it difficult, if not impossible, for voters to express their preferences. And if they're mad at being gerrymandered, the chances of them being able to vote somebody out for doing it get less and less, the more gerrymandered they are. Right. Um, so they said, well, if we don't step in here, then there's no other sort of remedy for these people. And that's you know, that's that I think is the bigger picture that legislators are really targeting. And, and for me, my my take on this case is regardless of, of what happens, just l- look at it practically. You're going to have Republican dominated a Republican dominated legislature and that just needs a simple majority to pass a congressional map. It doesn't have the oversight of some independent redistricting commission or the prospect of a, a gubernatorial veto like some other states do. This is a process Republicans pretty much have control over uh, and when they do so next year and draw these maps, they're going to have a 5-2 conservative state Supreme Court and a conservative state Supreme Court that's going to be in place through at least 2028, barring some unforeseen circumstances, deaths, retirements, early exits of of sitting justices, barring some crazy circumstance. This is going to be practically a Republican-dominated process in the state for the next several years and and really what this case to me means is a lot more for for other states than necessarily north carolina in the immediate future at least right and well yeah and and if 
you know, it's also possible that we could see that case revisited, that ruling revisited in Harper v. Hall. Um, you know, if our U.S. Supreme Court is revisiting cases from 50 years ago, you know, <laughs> why not, right? I mean, we were, you know, if stare decisis is out the window, then I guess anything is fair. Uh, but at any rate, um, so we will be there. I'll be there anyway, um, inside the room, and I will be reporting live from D.C. on Wednesday. Um, should be fun. So it'll definitely be interesting. I'm, I'm waiting through. There are 65, 65 amici briefs. So um, I'm not going to get through all of them before Wednesday, but I'm, I'm doing my best. And let, uh, let's rattle them off here one by one right now. Number oh, one. <laughs> <laughs> let's not. Uh, anyway, so super interested in that. A lot of legal experts very interested in that one, too. Um, we should mention uh, that the Senate this week passed the um, the basically it's a repeal of DOMA. So it's a law that's that sort of puts marriage rights for um, same sex and interracial couples into federal law and essentially says to states, hey, state, you know, if if the Supreme if the Supreme Court overturns the Obergefell ruling and you don't want to allow you don't want to marry gay people, that's fine. You don't have to. But you still have to recognize those marriages if they were married somewhere else where it is valid. So basically saying that, you know, the marriage will be recognized federally, you know, um, at a federal level, regardless of what states might decide to do with it. So that's, you know, it's a big deal, obviously. Um, and LGBTQ advocates say, you know, it's a it's a this safety net in case something should happen at the high court. Um, you might remember that Clarence Thomas specifically referenced interracial and same sex marriage in his um, in his concurring opinion to the overturning of Roe earlier this year. Uh, because those two cases use some of the same legal logic that Roe did. Um, so you know, that was the sort of the impetus for this. The interesting part to me is that one of the chief movers in the Senate was um, Senator Tom Tillis, who was just 10 years ago was one of the primary movers of the, the constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage in North Carolina. Uh, he said, you know, he said the other day, he said, what changed his mind was, you know, the, the ruling in Obergefell and, you know, and well, in time, he had predicted it was going to be overturned in a generation or two. It ended up only taking a couple of years. So um, he's taking some heat from that from social conservatives here in the state. Uh, a lot of folks talking about maybe backing primary challengers uh, when he comes up again in 2026. I guess we'll have to see. Richard Burr was another of the, they were two of the 12 Republicans who voted in favor of that bill. Burr is not running for re-election, so he doesn't really have to worry too much about a challenger. Uh, you know, now it goes back to the House and the question is, did they get to it before the end of session? You know, with all the other stuff that's going on right now, I don't know that that's a given. Right. And, and just for context, the DOMA, you're referring to the Defense of Marriage Act there in 1996, right. signed by by Bill Clinton that basically banned federal recognition of right. same-sex marriages and, and really limited the definition to one man and, and one woman. But the, the key thing in that law, is, as I understand it, is that it allowed states to refuse to, to recognize right. these, these same-sex marriages. So uh, basically what what this new federal law would would do that was supported by Tillis and Burr, like you just said, is it would allow uh, those two to to the current current same sex marriages to uh, remain uh, legally binding marriages, basically uh, uh, ensuring there's there's some federal protections for uh, people who are in existing relationships and existing marriages. But the concern within the community is is still that this bill did not go far enough uh, in making sure that future marriages are also protected. Right. 
or that states are going to offer them. Like, you know what? I mean, but think about it this way. You know, North Carolina still has, a, because the, the, you know, the voters passed it in 2012. So if the Supreme Court were to overturn uh, you know, the right to gay marriage, I mean, that, that amendment would go back into effect. And you basically have a bunch of people who just had their marriages undone. And that is a legal quandary. What a morass, right? Um, how do you deal with that in terms of property ownership and hospital visitation rights and child, you know, uh, guardianships and, you know, all that. So it, it would definitely create a real legal nightmare um, if the Supreme Court were to take it up. A lot of conservatives who voted against the bill say they don't think the Supreme Court will go back to it. Um, you know, but I think I don't think anybody really knows at this point exactly what the Supreme Court's going to do. And so this was just sort of seen as a way to provide us to let's put it some certainty for the millions of people who are in interracial or same sex marriages. Right. I, I would not take a bet on trying to predict what Supreme Court justices will do. And no. certainly with that Roe v. Wade overturning, it, it's opened the door to lots of concerns. Certainly has. Um, one last thing I do want to mention about this week. Um, so um, Governor Cooper spoke, I think it was Tuesday, at a conference at NC State. And this is a conference on electrification of, this sounds real sexy, I know, electrification of medium and heavy duty vehicles. Okay. <laughs> Yay, right? No, but, but let me explain. Um, so, you know, we think about, when I think about an electric vehicle, I think like a, a Prius, right, or a Tesla. Uh, however, there are the, the sort of the, the medium and heavy duty vehicles that are on the road, which is like your school buses, your garbage trucks, your utility trucks, tractor trailers, um, they make up just like, I don't know, like 3% of the vehicles that are on the road at any given time, but they emit about a third of the emissions, particulate matter, and about a quarter of the um, nitrous, basically greenhouse gases. So if they could electrify those, then it would make a big dent in greenhouse gases and climate change. Uh, without having to require a whole lot of, of new vehicles. It's much it's, it's a lower hanging fruit, essentially, than, you know, trying to get a lot of passenger cars to convert. And so very interesting, you know, talk about how to get local and state governments to do this. It is it is more expensive to, you know, to buy an electric vehicle. I mean, in the long run, um, a lot of people say they will actually end up costing you less because you don't have to get oil change. You could just plug it in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, they do cost more up front. And so one of the things that Cooper is doing is uh, this administration is working on a rule that was in an, it was executive order. I think it was last month that he signed uh, that basically said, you know, we are going to require uh, these sort of man, these heavy equipment dealers, these, you know, these vehicle dealers to offer more electric vehicle choices on their lots. And the thinking is that, you know, that might help to drive the market, it might help to lower cost because of scale. Um, you know, and but but you know, Cooper did say pretty clearly he's not planning to go the route of some other states where they've talked about trying to phase out diesel engines completely. Uh, he said we're we're not there. He said, but we definitely want to make it easier for people to find electric vehicles to choose them if they want to. Right. I, I just keep thinking about when I when I I'm hearing this subject, I think of him going to the Charlotte event uh, for an electric vehicle event earlier this year. And then taking his uh, private, I think SUV or or whatever the main security services for for the governor's office, parking that across the street, and then driving a block to the event in an electric vehicle. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, because you got to get the legislature to pay for those vehicles. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't think they're going to give him an electric car anytime soon. But um, no. well, you never know. You never know. 
Um, anyway, I think that's about it for us this week, unless there's something I'm not thinking of. The only thing I just really wanted to say was for the election results and outcomes, one thing that stood out to me was was just this the the, the use of mail in balloting has was accelerated during the course of the pandemic. So it kind of remained an open question of is that going to become a new practice for for lots of North Carolinians who liked doing mail in balloting for the first time in 2020? And just quickly, what we saw was uh, uh, basically in 2020, because of the pandemic, we saw one million North Carolina voters cast their ballots by mail. And this year it was around 187,000 or so. So considerable drop. But it is also 2018. Yes. But it is worth noting that that's 187,000 is nearly double what it was. It's about double what it was compared to 2018. So we are seeing more North Carolinians making uh, voting by mail a a practice, uh, but certainly greater than 2018, but far less than than 2020. You know, I have a thought about that because I actually did the mail in, you know, in 2020. Um, and you know what is kind of a pain. And, and <laughs> in, in this this yeah, year's election, you have to have two witness signatures, not just one. Right. And that's how it is usually. It was just an, there was an exception made because of the pandemic. But yeah, you got to have two witness signatures and you got to make sure everything's on the right line and everything is filled out. The, the addresses and the names are printed and all that stuff. And honestly, it's just easier to just go and early vote or just go vote day of. I mean, for me, for me, you know, but there are a lot of people who don't have the, the mobility for that or the transportation for that, who who do like to use the, the mail in ballots. And um, I understand that there was some conversation this week um, at the State Board of Elections canvas meeting about whether the state should start moving to um, signature verification, which is something that a lot of other states do on uh, mail in ballots. But there's, it's actually fraught with a lot of different things that can go wrong with it. And the, you know, the argument that the folks at the elections board make is by having two witnesses, we, we use that instead of trying to do signature verification. So, and, and, um, and you have to basically sign an, a, a certificate that, that you basically attest to your own eligibility. So, I mean, you right. can't. You have to provide, you have to be a registered voter to get one. You have to provide your like last four, you know, your driver's license number or whatever. So it's not that easily it's not that um, subject to fraud, let's put it that way. But nonetheless, we might hear more about signature verification next year. Absolutely. All right, well guys, I think that is it. We will wrap this up. Thanks so much for spending a little time with us and tuning into The Wrap this week. As you no doubt have noticed, this is now a podcast, not a video. So uh, please do sign up for the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And we really appreciate you joining us and we will catch you up next week.